You're listening to The Stock Universe with fund manager at New Deal Invest, Mass Christiansen, and the previous professional badminton player and now private investor, Matthias Boll. Welcome to The Stock Universe. We're living through an era of unprecedented change to our society as well as our economy. Make no mistake about it. Growth is not just a financial issue, it is a strategic issue. This is the third episode of our podcast series uh, about cybersecurity with Convexity. Today we're talking security operations that will be Palo Alto Networks, CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1's um, area. In the previous podcast, we had episode one, which was a general podcast about cybersecurity, an introduction to cybersecurity. And in the second episode, we talked about network uh, security. So go listen to those uh, if you have not listened to it. So tell us some more about uh, Convexity. What 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 is it? My name is Jordan. I'm managing director of Convexity. Uh, Together with my co-founder, Simon, um, we run Convequity, which is a specialized equity research firm that integrates financial analysis and enterprise technology insights. Um, we take a look at a company's product, architecture, and vision in order to produce unique perspectives that set us apart. Our high-level and bottom-up understanding enables us to identify under-the-radar trends that often get overlooked by the general public. We primarily target public, publicly traded companies, um, but also private startups in the cybersecurity data and productivity sectors. Yeah, so if, if you take a look at um, the Wall Street analysts, the way how they um, analyze the, their uh, companies that they cover, they usually heavily reliant on the surveys and the talking with the resellers. So it's like buying Coca-Cola stock, stock without knowing what the drink is, but simply relying on the sales, the, the near-term sales data. So we take a differentiated look. We take a look at understanding the product first, what a company really offers. And then we take a look at the architecture and the vision of the founder. Second, we take a look at the entire industry holistically. So who are the key players and what are their modes and what's their capacity positioning against each other. And then the third is that we take a look at the view, not only for the public traded companies, but also private startups, because for most of the time, startups may triumph and disrupt existing public companies. So by having a very holistic view across the products industry and the private startups, we are able to deliver very differentiated equity research to our clients. Last episode, the second one, we recorded a few months back. And um, what I have actually like seen since, um, it is an increasing interest from, from people uh, in these cybersecurities, uh, especially in the read, written media. We also uh, get more questions from our listeners from the Danish podcast that, that are more interested in these companies and also that some of the big companies that people are more familiar with them now. So before we uh, continue with third episode, can you, uh, Jordan, give us a brief recap of, uh, of what we have discussed in the two first uh, episodes? Yeah, sure, Matthias. Um, so, yeah, a brief recap. So in the 
first episode, we talked about cybersecurity from a high-level perspective. We talk, talked about the evolution of the industry over the past decade and more recently since the pandemic and since the growing usage of cloud computing. And we talked about why it's becoming more and more important within the arena of IT. Um, but we also talked about why it's generally hard to understand for the typical investor. And um, so in that first episode, we provided some simple and relatable analogies uh, to break down the complexity and make it easier for investors and listeners to understand. Um, and also in that episode, we divided the industry into four categories or four pillars, which were network security, security operations, cloud security, and identity. And the reason we did that was, again, to try and simplify the industry for the listeners, but also it provided some structure for this podcast series that we're doing. So in each episode, we're going to focus on a, an individual pillar of cybersecurity. And so in the second episode, we focused on the first pillar of cybersecurity, which was network security. And specifically, we talked about SASE, uh, because that's a key technolo technological trend that is driving transformation in network security. Um, and we talked about how we believe there's market leadership changes occurring in SASE. And um, we discussed the insights and investor implications related to that. So in that episode, we talked about a number of companies, both public and private. Uh, so now this third episode of the series, we're focusing on the second pillar, which is security operations. Um, so yeah, with that, I guess I'll hand it off to, to Simon. He can introduce security operations in this episode. Yeah, so I'll just um, I'll just uh, say that I listened to um, to the second episode for the third time a couple of days ago, and I just keep learning from it. Um, it's a great insight in in network security, how security and um, and networking is converging, and and you guys do a really fantastic recap or or introduction to companies like. Palo Alto Networks, Fortinet, uh, what's it called? AWGO. Um, Broadcom. Broadcom, yes, yes, exactly. And Cloudflare and uh, and non-listed Netscope. So it it really helps understand network security, which which yeah, it's going to be so uh, important. So so anybody who hasn't listened to it, um, go listen to it uh, right away. And then we're going to talk about security operations. And, and could you do uh, today, and, and could you do a brief introduction to that, Simon? Yeah. So when, when you think about the cybersecurity in general, there are two broad categories. So the first one is the product itself. So you know you need to buy uh, network security products. You need to buy endpoint security products and deploy them. But the second uh, component is really the people you need to manage all of these products. And if you don't maintain them, operate them properly, then the best product could fail. So what we are seeing is that the endpoint security is kind of merging together with the security operations. And it makes the security operations uh, more automated and more scalable because previously security operations is very labor intensive, meaning that you need to hire more people to manage more products and devices. But we find it a growingly more investable space 
because it is being automated by the software. So for the software, the unit economics, the scale is way better than the previous era, whereby you need the manual uh, human labor to deliver additional work. Uh, furthermore, we are seeing huge changes that could be brought by the next generation solutions and gen AI to SecOps. So I believe that this is a very promising field for investors to watch. Which companies are we going to be talking about today? Right, so it would be uh, Palo Alto Networks, Sentinel One, CrowdStrike, and uh, Fortinet. And to a lesser extent, uh, some more legacy companies like Microsoft, Splunk, and Tenable. I can't wait. I'm so <laughs> thrilled about that. So um, the cybersecurity has tens of thousands of software and hardware-based tools from hundreds of vendors. So why is security operations or uh, SecOps so important? Right. Um, well, security operations um, that I refer to as SecOps is vitally important because it fills in the gaps that are not filled by software and hardware-based tools. So in, in the um, prior episode, um, I mentioned how cybersecurity can largely be divided into two approaches. Those two, those two approaches are prevention-based security and detection-based security. Um, so in simpler times, as we discussed in previous episodes, when um, during the Castle and Moat 1.0 era, when um, an enterprise's IT environment, an entire network could be completely defined by the castle and moat, right? So you, you'd have a bridge going over the moat, um, providing an entrance into the castle's grounds. Now, that's equivalent to a single gateway in a corporate network that used to control all the traffic going in and out of a corporate network. And that's where the firewall would be situated. And the firewall would block or allow traffic according to whether it was malicious or not. So that's a prevention-based approach to security. And then a second layer of prevention-based security was um, the antivirus software agents deployed on the endpoints. And this was manageable because back then, um, most of the enterprise's machines, PCs, uh, laptops, servers, was inside the castle and moat. So it was manageable. You could deploy all these software agents onto those. But then we saw a disintegration of this castle and moat model uh, because of well, it was happening even before the pandemic, but it was accelerated because of the pandemic. Um, we saw um, enterprises now had workforces that were distributed, highly remote. Um, they was managing data, assets and operations um, in a highly dispersed environment, you know, in on-prem data centers, but also across multiple clouds. So at that point, you can no longer have a single gateway controlling all the traffic. You, you can't even have multiple gateways um, because an enterprise's digital surface had expanded so much that it became very porous, meaning that there were innumerable ways for cyber attackers to attack and make their way into the enterprises, uh, towards the enterprise's assets. And also because they're using the cloud, they can't, they're, they're managing many more machines now. So it's not feasible to deploy software agents protecting these machines and um, so predominantly cybersecurity shifted from being uh, prevention based um, to now predominantly detection based and so we've seen lots of SaaS based software for security that's appeared over the last several years 
that connects to an enterprise's network and it connects to all the machines, all the network gear, and it fetches information. And then from that, it can make detections. And once it's made it, it detected a threat, it will send an alert. And that's where SecOps comes in uh, because you need um, a, human drug, a human operator in order to respond to these alerts um, and quarantine the threat, investigate it, remove it, and remediate the uh, environment back to a state of hygiene. So that, that's why SecOps has, has become important. It's the industry's largely shifted from prevention-based security now to detection and what I allowed in that is detection and response. Yeah, so I may add is that um, I, I think SecOps is going to be the fountain center of the next phase of the security maturity curve. Because if you think about the past two decades, uh, the most successful cybersecurity companies, they are companies that are selling products like, you know, Fortinet, Palo Alto Networks, they are selling the network uh, appliance or Symantec or McAfee selling the software, antivirus software to you, but you have to manage these products. And uh, what I've seen is that in the past two decades, people, the enterprise customers, they were focusing too much on buying the best product, but they didn't invest enough in how to operate and better leverage these products. So there is a huge gap that we should invest more on how to operate these products. And by, uh, you know, educating and learning the best practices and automating security operations, we can gain a way better uh, security posture versus just buying more products and buying more and better products. Simon, now uh, Jordan, he's mentioned this uh, castle and moats analogy. Can, SecOp, uh, can SecOps be uh, applied to this analogy and, and how does it fit in? Yeah, so I think we can use endpoint security uh, as an example. So in the previous era, it was just antivirus, uh, hash key based antivirus. So what that means is that it's just like uh, installing a locker and installing an alarm to your house and to protect your house. And you know, it doesn't work that well because it generates too much amount of uh, false positives. So what does that mean? It means that whenever someone comes to your home, the alarm will be triggered. So even if that guy is just kind of uh, somewhere in between, not super malicious, but not super benign, somewhere in between, the alarm will trigger. So what you'll see is that the previous generation of endpoint security tools, they gener generate too much false positives and they cannot properly identify the real threat. And what's changing with the next generation endpoint security is that they are switching from uh, prevention to the detection and response. So what that means is that it's like, instead of uh, installing an alarm, you just install a security camera within your home and the camera is connected to a centralized intelligence room whereby that intelligence room, the analyst is able to check, say 1000 houses camera. And then the analyst is able to see, okay, this house is hacked by one hacker and this hacker used these tactics to steal the valuable asset out of this house. And then actually this tactics was used by another hacker in another house, say three months ago. And then you can correlate uh, these threat intelligence all together. So that's the beauty of uh, EDR in the sense that 
you don't care about the first line of defense. You assume that at the end of the day, you are going to get breached at some point of the time. But if you are able to immediately gain the alert and understand who hacked you uh, after the breach happened, then you can better improve your security posture. So in that sense, SecOps is about gathering the information instead of protecting um, your assets outright. It's about collecting the information first and being able to uh, immediately respond to the threat once it happened. So uh, I think that's the uh, way how SecOps is able to help the custom mode architecture. Yeah. You, you used the word EDR. Could you explain what, what that is? All right. Uh, so the previous generation of endpoint security is basically prevention, meaning that you just build a list of uh, villains and then you check like, okay, is this guy a villain? Then I will block uh, this guy. But uh, EDR means endpoint detection and response. So instead of maintaining a list of all villains in the world, you don't, you don't think that you can build this list. So you just let everyone come in and then you watch their behavior and then you detect which one's activity is malicious and then you respond accordingly. Maybe send this one to a sandbox, send, uh, lock him to one specific room and then watch his activity. So that's the way how EDR works. Um, no, this this for me makes so much sense what Simon is is, uh, is is talking about, and we really need this now. We have this like uh, when you can just like signature online if you buy a house or if you change bank or all these things. But the issue is that it's so slow. Uh, the system we have something called my ID in Denmark, like it's a digital signature on on the phone. And you know the idea is really smart; it works, but it's just very slow. Um, so I have recently uh, just purchased a house and to to sign for all these papers. I think online it took me like almost a half an hour. I think it would almost have been faster to go to my printer, print all the papers, and then sign it and, and do a snapshot of it. That's that's how slow it is. So this about like recognizing that it's from my uh, Mac or from my PC that I'm signing this and so on seems like the way to go because these systems are smart but very, very slow currently in order to, to have the right security. Yeah, and I feel like just on that one on that comment, I use the Denmark's uh, uh, signature system too. Yeah, it, it feels like uh, they have a bit of technical depth, and the system is kind of outdated. And maybe yeah, they just need to redesign a next generation uh, system. So you know, that this shows that there is always going to be demand for IT budgets because you know uh, once once your system is deployed and then it gets it gets older, then you need to uh, re-architect them. Otherwise, it's going to be super slow and handicapping the productivity. Jordan? Yes, um, I was just going to follow on with what Simon said. Yes, um, I like his analogy um, in having a, a list of villains because you you in the in the wild and uh, you, you're going to get uh, people committing cybercrime for the first time so they're not actually going to be on the, the list of villains are they so um that, that's why you is uh, prevention-based security on its own can no longer protect an enterprise because you cannot know every single threat that is going to come forward so the better model or more effective model has been edr um where it's it's 
ex- you do still have your prevention-based security, but you accept that um, cyber attackers are going to penetrate your defenses and get inside and close to your assets. And that's why you, you need to have tools that detect threats and can send alerts and help security operation analysts observe what's happening and build up more context um, because they might not actually be malicious. It might just be somebody is uh, around your assets that uh, didn't know they was, you know, inadvertently. They're, they're not actually malicious. So that's why you need to build bigger, more context. But you do that over time uh, by by uh, analysts working with software. I heard the uh, Palo Alto presentation after their uh, earnings uh, last time where it was uh, a Friday, which which really scared a lot of people. Uh, but they talked about this thing that 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 you need to take down. Um, you, you, you can see them as airplanes that are flying in over your country and you need to take them down in real time. And, and that's more an operational thing that you need to figure out what's coming instead of making a list of what what used to be coming and uh yeah so so getting i guess getting to the next wave of security with ai being a a large part of it is is something maybe as well yeah yeah so that that, that's interesting Uh, so yeah we've we've gone from i mentioned we've gone from prevention-based security to detection and response where detection edr needs in some time in order to collect the context of a threat right but sometimes there's a risk having that dwell time if there is a serious sophisticated attack in the environment and you're taking your time in collecting data and context by that time the sophisticated attacker could already have done damage so We've seen a shift from prevention-based to detection-based and response, but now we're using um, like Palo Alto using more and more automation and AI to try and reduce that dwell time. You know, try and try and use the automation in order to respond uh, almost in real time or uh, near real time. So, um, from my own research, I understand SegOps has become increasingly important, but. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So why is that? We, we've sort of been around it, but um, but uh, talk some more about um, the evolution of SegOps operations of the cybersecurity industry, and and why it has become equally as important as the other three three pillars of cybersecurity. Right. Okay. Well, um, we we talked about it switching from prevention to detection and response and SecOps is the response part. So that's the quick answer, but there's more to it than that um, because cyber attackers have become more sophisticated. They've increased in sophistication, but also become more prolific as well. So that means every day there's more and more new and advanced malware and threats that are able to circumvent existing security solutions. Um, and at the same time, we have a massive global shortage of cybersecurity talent uh, in it that, that we're needed to operate this software. Um, so because of the surge in sophisticated cybercrime and under, under-resourced SecOps teams, uh, when I say SecOps, I mean internal SecOps teams at enterprises, um, that um, is creating huge demand for external SecOps services from the likes of CrowdStrike, Sentinel-1, and Palo Alto networks. Um, so, but if we talk about the evolution of 
security operations or SecOps, you really do have to talk about the evolution of endpoint security. Um, so endpoint security, you could describe it as having a front end and a back end. And um, depending on where the brains are, whether it's in the front end or the back end will, will depend on, you know, uh, how, it will depend on how effective um, the vendor is at protecting enterprises. So kind of um, before the cloud era, before CrowdStrike, before EDR, the brains of endpoint security was in the front end. And that front end is the endpoint agent. Yeah. So um, back when McAfee and Symantec were the most dominant endpoint security players before the cloud era, uh, they had signature-based antivirus agents. And what they do, as Simon touched on earlier, is they check for they check for files that have come onto a device and they check them for malicious signatures that have been seen before in the wild, you know, similar to the villain list. Um, and they, these uh, signature-based solutions were very effective in the 1990s, uh, but then because of the internet and cloud and mobile, they quickly became ineffective because these signature-based solutions and needed need to be updated with the latest newest threats that uh, the newest signatures out there but because of the internet just every day there's a, a an influx of new new signatures and it's just not possible to update them in time um so crowdstrike came along with a divergent approach and it shifted the brains from the front end from the endpoint end agent end to the back end where the, the, the data layer is or the data backend, the cloud storage, processing, analytics end. And so they created, they designed a super lightweight agent that goes on the endpoint. And it doesn't by itself autonomously stop and remove any threats. But what it does is send all the telemetry to the backend, to the cloud. And um, CrowdStrike's analysts in the cloud will use all of the cloud's processing power and compute in order to um, uncover, you know, the most subtle of malicious patterns that would indicate a, a cyber attacker is behind the defences. Um, so the CrowdStrike no longer needed to maintain a signature list or a villain list because they had the, the processing power to detect known threats that had known signatures, unknown threats that with you know signatures that had never been seen before and even threats that had no signature yeah so um crowdstrike completely turned it on its head with this edr by shifting the brains from the front end to the back end and this is why secops has become into the limelight because if you're going to do that uh, shift the brains to the back end where the cloud is you need human operators to, to respond and, and use the software and protect um, all their enterprises. So quite a few endpoint security players followed CrowdStrike's path, but a lot of CrowdStrike's customers, they was just using CrowdStrike for the detection part, but could see, knew that they was under-resourced, um, their internal SecOps teams were under-resourced. So why not also use CrowdStrike for the response part? Yeah, so um, this is uh, this is called managed detection and response. So CrowdStrike offers this managed detection and response, which is uh, basically giving, um, allowing 
enterprises to use their external SecOps services and Sentinel ones followed suit, Palo Alto, etc. So um yeah, it's the shift from front having the brains from a front end to the back end, which has put SecOps in the spotlight. Jordan, so um it doesn't mean that you don't need front end protection. It's just an an extra layer. Is is that the way to understand it? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, well um, these endpoint security players have different designs, right? So um yeah, McAfee, Symantec, they have heavy duty agents which are do actually drain the resources of the PCs, laptop service. So that's not ideal. Um, they they are yeah front end, so they focus mainly on on prevention. They do send telemetry to their back end, but their back end, you know, their data layer is not by design. It's not conducive for massive scale analytics and processing, right? So they mainly they still are mainly front end. The brains are in the front end. CrowdStrike is the opposite. Um, Their, their, their agent can only do a very little amount of autonomous stopping and removing of threats, but they send all this telemetry to the back end and CrowdStrike can remotely or enable its customers to remotely uh, stop and remove threats. Okay. Sentinel One is kind of in between. They have their brains partly in the front end. So they have, um, Uh, an agent which is still lightweight but a bit heavier than CrowdStrike's and it's able to autonom autonomously stop and remove threats but it also sends telemetry to the back end um, in order for its analysts, for its security operation analysts to you know analyze and find their harder to detect threats. Um, so there's, there's different architectures as you go vendor by vendor. Yeah, uh, I, I would just add that Uh, yes, if you think about the pure EDR itself, that there is no front-end prevention. It's all just detection and response. So it assumes that you know it, it doesn't handle any you know uh, protection like a malicious file and then saying it doesn't uh, delete that file outright. It would watch. But what what's pretty often for for the uh, EDR deployment is that you would keep EDR together with. Uh, antivirus software. So, for example, if you deploy CrowdStrike, usually you would continue to use your Microsoft Defender because for most enterprises, uh, you would use Office. And then Microsoft, this is the brilliant strategy from Microsoft. They provide a Defender uh, within the Office 365 license. So what that means is that Uh, if you use Office, then it usually means that you have free licenses for Microsoft Defender. So why don't you just leverage that? So usually people will just deploy uh, Microsoft Defender as the first line of defense, which is just traditional prevention, uh, checking the list. But once that fails, um, you would just use CrowdStrike to detect it and then maybe instruct it back, instruct Microsoft Defender to do a full disk scan and then to figure out if there is any malicious file or roll back to the previous hygiene state. Simon, did you have anything to add to uh, to the the third uh, question? Yeah, maybe I can add a bit. It's like uh, why why SecOps is important. It's because now the most prevalent cybersecurity strategy is layered cybersecurity strategy. So what that means is that uh, previously you just wanted to build a first line of defense, 
But now you, you would assume that, okay, this line of defense may fail. And so that's the other. So you want to layer multiple lines of defense within your enterprise. So then it's a really an operational overhead because out of a sudden you have so many layers, so many lines of defense that you have to track, de detect and monitor. And obviously you cannot, uh, imp uh, you cannot hire more analysts to track all of these lines of defense. You need something, a SecOps software that is able to automatically track, monitor, or uh, to a certain extent, uh, create automated workflow to replace the traditional human labor work that are growingly uh, insufficient and inscalable in a world in which you have so many tools to track and in a world whereby the brain is not the, uh, uh, on the uh, on-prem, on the software agent. Instead, it lives in the cloud, it lives in a centralized brain. So you need a powerful uh, SecOps product to track and get the best use of all of these products. Let, let's talk a little bit, a bit about uh, the potential here. Is SecOps a smaller but higher growth market uh, than the, the other three pillars of cybersecurity? That's the first thing I want to know. And then maybe you can sense out the potential of the, of the market size, that is the current uh, market size, and then the future growth rate. Right, yeah. So, the well, let's start by seeing how big the entire cybersecurity industry is. So um, there's various estimates, but it's possibly between 160 billion and 200 billion dollars uh, in total addressable market size. And software, the software component of that probably accounts for about 100 billion dollars. So that leaves the services side, um, which is, you know, predominantly security operations, um, could be between $60 billion and $100 billion right now. And the the entire industry is probably growing, I would say, high single digits of growth, um, which is quite remarkable if you consider the time is about $200 billion, right? So that's it's just quite a good growth growth rate. And but, but SecOps, security operations, is is growing higher than that industry average um, possibly high teens and for leading cybersecurity vendors that are offering their ex um, uh, SecOps services, you know, the growth would be quite a bit higher. Um, but the growth is kind of layered because, yes, the first demand is um, enterprises are um, managing internal SecOps teams but because of the global shortage of cybersecurity talent, these SecOps teams are under-resourced, understaffed. So they're fighting a losing battle. Um, there's uh, a surge in the amount of cybercrime and insophistication, and they have fewer resources to, to fight it. Um, so that is, is creating demand for external SecOps services from the likes of CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1. So that's one le level of growth. But then this $100 billion market, which is predominantly services-based, you know, driven by, by labor, uh, manual work, um, that is ready to be transformed by automation and AI, which Palo Alto alludes to in its uh, investor presentations. Um, so 
you know, if you consider the the amount of potential growth coming from AI, especially the latest wave of AI, which is gen- generative AI, um, then you know the the growth for the SecOps market could be be higher than high teens. It could be maybe low twenties, you know, or even higher. Yeah. So I, I may add is that if you think about the overall picture, so for the last decade. Uh, the best uh, grow growers within the cybersecurity are mo- mostly network security and then uh, EDR, uh, the next generation of enterprise security and uh, obviously cloud security and identity. While SecOps uh, was kind of a fairly muted uh, space whereby its growth, um, high things, uh, it has relatively the, the highest attain out of all other markets because it has a heavy labor component within it and it's the glue that glue every other components together so that's why its time is pretty high but i think what's going to change is that i think we may see a real acceleration or a renaissance of uh secops in a sense that if uh what we're seeing with secops the next generation secops companies what they are doing is correct then we may see uh, improved ROI for SecOps tools, meaning that you can do more with less with software. For example, previously, if we wanted to handle a SecOps work, you need to hire an analyst, which may cost you say $100,000 per year. But if you can replace that analyst work with software that is say cost you uh, $10,000 per year with faster speed, more work to be done and uh, combining more tools all together without additional training, then you know you have dramatically improved ROI for SecOps, and then it's gonna to drive more demand. So then I think it makes sense that SecOps as a sector is able to grow higher to really accelerate from the low single digit higher into high things or even higher than twenty percent because of this wild improvement. Uh, in terms of the fundamental unit economics. Okay, guys, so before we go into the discussion about specific promising stocks in this space, let's dive into the different components of the SecOps stack. Um, It's just not about security analysts hunting for threats um, and responding to threats. Can you describe the different layers that enable a full operation SecOps team? Uh, Yeah, so there are... Uh, three layers. So the first layer is the endpoint agent, whereby you collect all the information available to you, and you are able to record every specific move made by uh, the software today, and then you share it, and then you send it over to the data layer, the data backend that is able to aggregate all the data together. And then with all the data aggregated together, SecOps automation tools are able to process this data and then respond accordingly. So one analogy to use is that going back to how endpoint security, EDR, was handled, you install security camera to the house and then it's connected to the centralized intelligence room. And then with that centralized intelligence room, you are able to hire a bunch of analysts, say 10 analysts, who are able to track 1,000 houses at the same time so in so in the previous era, you are basically you know sending uh, one analyst to one room and to track it. But with cloud, then you can you can use the multi-tenancy, meaning that 
multiple houses uh, security can be shared and you can use less analyst to track multiple houses at the same time. And what you are seeing with the next evolution is that maybe we don't need human analyst. Maybe some of them can be replaced by virtual assistants like the gen generative AI artificial intelligence or maybe not just using very sim simple workflow. You know, if something happens, if, if the door is broken, then you may trigger uh, some automated function. For example, uh, may, you may trigger a full disk scan and then figure out if there is anything uh, malicious. And if not, then uh, maybe you should uh, create an alert to alert the human ex human expert to do the field, uh, to, to do the further investigation. So that's the way how the setup stack works. But obviously, uh, the endpoint agent layer is insufficient. So in the future, we will see that you, you are not only going to get, gather endpoint data, you may gather many more other sources of data to improve the seconds. But overall, that's the way how it works. The endpoint agent collecting the data, send it over to data backend, aggregating all data. And then you have SecOps automation to process this data. So Simon, how how much of um, so when when the airplane comes in over the border, uh, you you detect this is not this is a malicious airplane, so you need you need uh, some some ground to air missiles to uh, to shoot it down or to put it into quarantine. Could you talk about how how do, how that processes? And I'm curious how much is automated now and. Um, and and how you how how fast you think development of automation in in threat removal uh, will be? Right. Well, uh, so right now we are in a mixture. So um, for for now, most of the people, I, I would say, uh, we are fifty to fifty. So fifty percent of enterprise have adopted EDR, but the rest are not. Uh, and there are some good reasons because EDR. The solution, although it's pretty promising, is not cheap because detection and response. You still need to hire more analysts, and you need to train them because you need to make sure that they are they are handling the processes properly. At the same time, you ask them to stay online, you know, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. That is super expensive. So there aren't that much companies that can afford this very expensive architecture. So with the rest, they still stick with the traditional uh, uh, endpoint security. And then, so I, I think what's, what is going to change in the future is that uh, if software is going to automate that labor work, that detection and response, then we can make EDR cheaper. We can make overall setups cheaper, but yet more effective. Then we can see a greater adoption of setups. So I think that's the... A promising part, and in in regards to how it works. So at the moment, if you think about a traditional uh, endpoint security, when a plane uh, comes into your border, uh, you just have a simple rule list to check. Okay, if this uh, signature, you know, sending out uh, by the plane uh, is correct, then no alarm. But if the signal is isn't correct, then it will trigger an alarm, and then you need you need to ask someone to handle it. But what uh, EDR is different is that when a plane comes to a border, uh, EDR would 
would then trigger an alarm or identify immediately or just detect and watch its activity. And then if you see something malicious with this plan, then it will trigger an alert. And then the analyst will uh, track its activity and see uh, th if there is any similarities between this plan's activity with the past activities of, of other plans. And then you can uh, respond uh, more uh, precisely. Okay, guys, so uh, what about the, the bottom layer of this uh, stack, uh, the endpoint agent layer? Why uh, is having a, a, a software agent installed uh, on endpoint device important if a SecOp team um, always uh, has their data layer and their op uh, operation layer? Right, so yes, the bottom layer, the, the endpoint agent layer is hugely important. Um, so, yeah, endpoint agents, they're deployed on PCs, laptops, and servers, and they send telemetry to the data layer. Um, and as Simon's described, um, at the data layer, is the data is aggregated, organized very efficiently in order for security operations analysts to interact with that data layer in order to make searches hunt for threats and investigate. So it, it's a major source of data get flowing into the, the data layer. Um, so that's, yeah, that's that's why it's very important. And yeah, uh, as, as previously mentioned by design vendor to vendor, there are variations in what an endpoint agent can do. You know, can it autonomously stop and remove threats itself? um or not or you know how much uh, telemetry does it does it send to the back end um so yeah um on the whole it's it's a major source that flows into the data layer so um that that's why it's important yeah so i, I may just add that uh software agent uh if you think about you know the the back end for the security uh, operators if you want to handle your work more precisely you need to know more information. You need to gain more context. And the way how you can gain more context is that you need to uh, have a software agent that is able to collect data for you. And you need to have a software agent that is able to collect uh, more data and more accurate data and uh, also more timely data to you such that you can respond uh, more accurately. Otherwise, if you don't have uh, clean data or you don't have enough data to correlate events, then you cannot make effective uh, detection and response. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. Um, the, the reason endpoint agents are important is because most activity in a, uh, the, the network or environment of an enterprise is, is happening on the endpoints. This is where code is executed, where programs are executed, where files are downloaded. So, yeah, it's um, arguably the, the biggest source of, of data, of telemetry to, to send to the cloud. Um, so even though, as we'll discuss later, you know, EDR is evolving into XDR, um, but nonetheless, um, EDR and fetching that telemetry from the endpoint is still probably the, the major source of uh, data that goes into the data layer. If we go, go back to the analogy of a security camera, so uh, 
the, the software agent collecting the data is about installing a security camera recording all the activities of the hacker. But if you don't have a software agent, you are only able to know like, okay, your house got hacked. And then you can only have a picture of the house after it's hacked. And you don't know what did a hacker uh, do to, to the house uh, during the hacking activity. So you need to able to record all activities and having all events recorded such that you can gain better information. And and we um, we introduced a new term XDR. What what is that, Jordan? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So XDR. Um, well, as we just explained, EDR is fetching all data from the endpoints uh, into the data layer. But what XDR does it is expands that. So with XDR, kind of spearheaded, firstly introduced by Palo Alto. Uh, but then um, Sentinel-1 was one of the pioneers as well of, of XDR. Um, and it's it's about, okay, the data layer isn't, isn't just fetching data from the endpoint, it's fetching data from a broader range of sources. So from, from the network, uh, from the cloud, um, from third-party vendors that have information. So uh, a more diverse range of data sources come into the data layer with XDR. And this obviously helps SecOps operations uh, because now they have a more di diverse range of data, larger data sets in order to um, build more context around uh, their, their threat hunting and investigations and when they see an attacker in their environment, it just creates uh, an ability to create more context. So that's, yeah, that's what XDR is essentially. Yeah, so going back to the analogy of security camera, so what, what that means is that uh, if you use EDR, then you are going to only install the security camera within your house. But, you know, if you are an investigator, that is less useful because uh, you don't know where did the hacker come from and uh, where, uh, how uh, did the hacker come to the house. So what you... It, it doesn't take a lot to be better if you can install the security camera uh, on the street, or even better if you can combine it with the satellite data, or you can add the mobile phone data to check uh, the activity and trace back the, the route of the hacker and trace the identity of the hacker. Then you can greatly uh, contextualize and create a storyline of a hacker's you know, source and destination. So then you can uh, create a better uh, detection and response. So if I have a large enterprise that has an in-house security operations team to fight cybercrime, who would I likely be using as my database backend? Right, well, uh, so in the, in the previous era, so before the prevalence of EDR, XDR and the next generation SecOps, you will use Splunk and uh, many other legacy SIEM tools. So what that means is that you will buy a bunch of hardware, the server within your uh, data center, and then you need to predict how much data you are going to keep. And then you also need to predict uh, how much query, like looking up the data, do I need to run, say, within a day. So that was a very inefficient model. And it actually, the 
innovation that we are seeing with the data layer is actually what enables what makes this uh, detection and response setups possible. Because in the previous era, if you use Splunk, it's so expensive that you cannot uh, save all the data to Splunk and you cannot uh, make lots of complex query on the data because it's so expensive. And then it, what that resulted in is that you have to decide, okay, I have uh, 10 sources of data, but Splunk is so expensive. I can only prioritize on say top three most important sources of data. And then you can, you can uh, previously, if you use Splunk, you also cannot run too much queries. So what that means is that, okay, I need to investigate uh, this event and then I need to search what are the three other similar events. But because the, the query is so expensive, you ended up saying, okay, I, I know I need to search three, but it's so expensive, I can only search one. But what happens with the next generation architecture, especially with the architecture from Snowflake, is that it's way cheaper. It's just very cheap for you to store all the data. You don't care. You just dump all the data to a centralized cloud data warehouse or lake house. And then it's also way cheaper and faster to do, to, to do a query. So previously, if you wanted to investigate and search, say, uh, how does this hacker activity uh, look like to others? Uh, if you wanted to search like other 1,000 activities, uh, this query, if you use Splunk, is going to uh, be processed within a day. That's very long. But if you use Snowflake, maybe it's going to be processed within one second. Then you can do more search. You can develop more features, and then you can investigate and do the detection and response more comprehensively. So that's like we have an airplane coming in our, over our border, and uh, we call we call security and ask if it's it if it's uh, if it's an an uh, an enemy that we should be worried about, and uh, and headquarters will tell us um, we'll call you back tomorrow and we'll <laughs> tell you if it's, exactly. if it's a problem. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'll just um, add a bit um, about the the sims about kind of if Mads if your enterprise hadn't yet started its SecOps transformation, it would probably uh, be using something like a SIM, which stands for Security Incident and Event Management. Um, and it'd probably be using Splunk's SIM. And the reason why enterprises have to have a SIM is because it's a compliance requirement, because they capture everything. They, they capture all data that's occurring on an enterprise's network. You know, anything from a software update uh, to a customer clicking a link, Splunk, uh, a SIM will capture it all. So while it's exhaustive in capturing data, uh, they're, however, not very good at identifying cyber threats. And to use a SIM and uh, make it operational for uh, good cybersecurity, um, there's a lot of overhead, substantial work, and a lot of ongoing management required. Um, so those uh, frustrations are generated um, next gen, next generation sims um, that address a lot of these pain points. Um, and there's quite a few promising startups in the space, but we, we really like the big players at this 
data layer you know these next gen sims you could call them uh, but not exactly sims but next gen data layers like from the likes of palo alto sentinel one and even crowdstrike what we say to a lesser extent um because they they address many many of these pain points from splunk's sim um, they organize data better um, so it's um, security operations analysts can search faster and investigate through this data layer quicker. Um, and also it's more scalable as well. And because it's more scalable, as Sam has pointed out, it's more cost effective. Right? And another advantage that these big players have is now they've organized their data layer to be super efficient, cost effective and highly uh, quick. Uh, they they have the very large data sets and very diverse data sets to feed into this data layer. So when you've got large diverse data sets combined with a very organized data layer, that puts you in a great advantage um, to train AI more accurately. Um, so yeah, we think these big players have a huge advantage because they've invested big bucks through MMA in acquiring the best of breed startup technology in order to transform their data layer. And now they are very ready for the, this next wave of AI, which is generative AI, because they have more and better organized data to train the AI. Um, so this, yeah, they're, they're productivity boost in their SecOps operations is, is going to be quite quite big. Um, so the, again, as Simon mentioned, the ROI, uh, previously kind of EDR was expensive for enterprises and maybe small, medium and bus uh, small, medium sized businesses. Um, but with this AI infused into it, uh, the ROI could be uh, a lot more beneficial. Guys, let's discuss the third layer. Uh, the layer where the analyst is actually doing the threat hunting response and remediation. Um, has this layer been undergoing similar uh, transformation to the data layer? Yeah, definitely. So if you think about the data layer, um, it wasn't really uh, economically attractive for most uh, customers before the cloud uh, comes in. So with a cloud data architecture, you are able to save more data and you're able to query data way faster. So that enables you to do more automation on top of this big data. So definitely we, we are seeing a huge innovation and lots of uh, new techniques and products coming out of this uh, SecOps uh, automation fund because previously, if you don't have enough data, then basically you can't do too much about it. And then Previously, if you if it takes more than a day to query a massive amount of data, then obviously you can't do too much workflow, automated workflow on top of it. But with now with the data layer that is uh, cheaper and more uh, efficient, then you can figure out okay uh, now I can build more workflows. And so, for example, when I am tracking a hacker, previously maybe I can only track one or two more similar events. But now I can query all events and then search uh, in the history, like what are the similarities and how are they similar uh, to each other? So that is going to dramatically improve your security efficacy. And also what we are seeing uh, before cloud, it was the emergence of one product called store. So it stands for security orchestration, automation and response. 
So what that means is that you want to build up a logic to say if something happens, then I'm going to handle it in this way. And then if this doesn't work, I'm going to uh, handle it to other parties or escalate it to a human expert to handle it. But what we are seeing with the next generation security operations is that uh, apart from hard building this hardened uh, workflows with uh, logics, you can also use machine learning and deeper learning to automate part of these decision-making processes. So instead of um, you know building, say, if this happens, then I will do so, you just uh, use uh, machine learning to automate, automatically extract the features like, okay, if someone does this activity, then it is very likely to be a hacker. And then you can use these advanced uh, um, algorithms to better track um, the activities and identify the bad actors out. Jordan, do you want to add something? Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a, a good question, like, um, where where's the innovation in, in the SecOps layer? So, um, I would say uh, out of all the three layers, the SecOps layer is the most exciting going into the future. I'd say right now the, the most innovation is at the data layer, kind of at the present and maybe the near future. And this is because in order for AI to prosper, you really do need to have a lo um, large amount of data, extremely well organized, okay? It can't be too messy, it has to be very uh, streamlined and organized in order to train the AI. Um, but kind of, so uh, that, that's still an ongoing innovation, um, but kind of in further into the future, and certainly over the next 10 years, um, I do see that the main innovation which will come from the SecOps layer. Um, and it's it, so, just like in the in the future, well, some some security operations um, vendors are already including in their SaaS interface, um, you know, um, ability for SecOps analysts to interact with the data layer using natural language, and this is just going to become more and more prevalent. So instead of a, an analyst writing, you know, using SQL, which stands for Structured Query Language or writing a script in Python in order to do a search, uh, hunt for threats or investigate. You know, security analysts can search using natural language, which will include, uh, be a big boost to productivity. Um, so, yeah, um, so you could say that uh, this wave of generative AI within SecOps, you, there's kind of three categories the way I see it. Uh, you, you have... Um, the generative AI that is providing a natural language interface in order to boost the productivity for analysts. You you also have like uh, potentially a virtual cybersecurity assistant that sits alongside these analysts and helps them do their work. You know, might guide them in the right direction. Um, and then you also have um, the uh, AI being able to auto respond entirely to some threats, stop a threat quarantine it, investigate, and then remediate the environment back to a state of hygiene. So I'd say there's three categories of AI, which probably do overlap, but yeah, it's, it's, it's quite exciting. So over the next 10 years, I see a huge transformation in SecOps driven by AI. 
let's let's now be a little bit specific with the companies and and uh, and please tell us uh, who are the legacy and these uh, next gen competitors in this space. Yeah, so um, you know, going back to the uh, SecOps stack, so three major stack: endpoint agent, data layer, and then uh, SecOps automation. So for the data layer, it was uh, Splunk, who is the legacy vendor. And then for the SOC automation layer, it's more about Tenable. But the caveat is that Tenable is, uh, although it's a pretty just old one company, second, Simon, we do I'll see just, that. I'll just mention the, t- the ticker code so people can follow it. Uh, Splunk, it is, is S-P-L-K and uh, T-E-N-B for Tenable. Sorry, continue. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Tenable is somewhere in between. So although it's a pretty old company, but we are still seeing some good innovation out of it. So it's somewhere in between. And then for Microsoft, it's a legacy vendor in the sense that it's software agent. It's primarily um, traditional antivirus, but it also has a new product line for the EDR, but it's still a pretty new uh, product line. There isn't too much customer using it. And then Microsoft, it also has a data layer, but also not too much people using it. So on Ballpark, it's still a pretty legacy company. And then for Palo Alto Networks, we see it as uh, the best winner out of the SecOps, the the next phase of the SecOps uh, products. Because what I think is that it is innovating uh, tremendously on all three uh, uh, layers. So it's it's one of the first to bring up the concept of uh, XDR. And then it is also the very first to bring in the concept of data lake, and then uh, XSIM, the next generation SIM uh, within the data layer. And then finally, it's also the biggest leader within the uh, SecOps automation because it acquired one company called uh, Demisto, so which was the basically the monopoly within the SOAR, the SOAR uh, industry. And then uh, Palo Alto Networks is also actively building out ways in which you can automatically uh, identify threats out of huge amount of data and then reduce the amount of false positives such that uh, human analysts can focus on uh, alerts that matter. And then second, I think is going to be Sentinel-1. So compared to Palo Alto Networks, Sentinel-1 was started as an endpoint security vendor. So it has more focus on the software uh, endpoint agent layer and the more focus on the data layer. But what we are seeing is that it's also innovating in the uh, SecOps automation, but it's not building too many features. Instead, it's building a programmable logic interface for you to interact with it. So for Palo Alto Networks, most of the automation are out of the box. For Sentinel-1, the automation part of it uh, are, also, uh, are out of the box, but some part of it, you need to bring in your own custom rules. Uh, but uh, the good side is that for some complex enterprises, they don't want to use out of the box logic because they have very special use cases. So they like Sentinel-1's approach in which you can build up your own custom rule and build up your custom uh, automation. And in regards to CrowdStrike, we see it as a leader in e- EDR, but it wasn't the first to XDR and its uh, data layer. Previously, it partnered with Splunk in data layer, 
So that handicapped is a potential in further expanding into SecOps automation. Because if you use Splunk, there isn't too much you can do with the data. But now it acquired a Danish company called Humio, uh, which is a next generation thing that is able to bring in the cost of saving more security data way lower. So we do see that uh, CrowdStrike is also improving in terms of the data layer, but still compared to Palo Alto Networks and Sentinel-1, CrowdStrike uh, has more technical debt because most of its customers are still on Splunk. And then for customers who are on Humio, uh, they, they have cheaper data to keep, but they don't have too much automation. And also the com compute speed from CrowdStrike seems to be slower versus Sentinel-1 and Palo Alto Networks. So that is its weakness. And uh, to a lesser extent, we see that Fortinet should be also a pretty competitive uh, solution here because Fortinet, uh, it owns uh, agent, it owns the data layer, and it also invested quite a lot on the SecOps automation. But the issue with Fortinet is that it is more, it has more uh, gene in network security. So it doesn't have too much uh, security for uh, endpoint. And for now, most of the SecOps automation and uh, buying for SecOps is about protecting the endpoint. But maybe in the future, SecOps is going to protect you know, more assets. Uh, apart from endpoint, you need to protect network, you need to protect identity, you need to protect your cloud assets. And that's the place where Fortinet uh, has an advantage over Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike, who are more focused on securing endpoints. I'm, I'm really I'm curious, and I think many of our listeners are, about the tech that you talked about for CrowdStrike. Could you, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, sort of, um, yeah, yeah, what it is, and, and maybe how they are going to uh, address this uh, going forward? And, and their ability to address it, actually? Yeah, so, well, CrowdStrike was founded. Uh, it's a pretty traditional Silicon Valley kind of tech startup uh, philosophy, which is called agile development, which means that you want to get started with a MEP, minimal viable product that is barely functionable. And then you gradually uh, increase the complexity and gradually expand the uh, product. So, but that issue is that then CrowdStrike, it was back when it was a startup, it focused more on building um, the endpoint agent and then building up the entire uh, EDR architecture, but it doesn't have enough uh, R&D resources to build up its own data layer. So it partnered with Splunk. And then as you know, Splunk is a very expensive solution and it's not a, uh, fast, uh, efficient solution. So that is a big technical debt because every uh, previous, before uh, acquiring Humio, Crunch, every CrowdStrike customer also uh, has to buy Splunk in order to use CrowdStrike. And Splunk is their own data layer. And then now that this is, now CrowdStrike has a new uh, data layer, Humio. Now they, they changed the name to call it LogScale. Now it has a new data layer, which is in-house. Now that's an issue because uh, you have existing operations on Splunk, and then you also have a new set of data layer. So you need to build up integration. You need to maintain uh, updates 
for two sets of data layers. And then you also need to per persuade your customers to switch from Splunk to uh, log scale. And this is a very expensive and very time consuming process. So that's the way why we call it a technical debt. But for good reasons, because if you compare it with Sentinel-1, Sentinel-1 uh, took another approach. You want to build up a more holistic, all in-house stack. But then Sentinel-1 spent more time in building the product rather than uh, spending more time pushing a, a bare-bone, minimal, functional product to the market immediately. So then what you are saying is that CrowdStrike gained more market share. It has more revenue, although um, both Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike was founded uh, in a similar uh, time uh, period. So th there are uh, pros and cons associated with this. Um, well, yeah, well, I'm from Denmark and I live in a city called Aarhus uh, in Denmark. And uh, we have an old uh, railway station uh, in, um, in, in Denmark uh, or in Aarhus, uh, which is um, closed now. And on the, on, outside the railway station, there's a sign called CrowdStrike. And uh, it, it, just, um, it just occurred to me that that's actually uh, Humio that, that, um, that is uh, yes, yes. located in, in that building. Is there yeah, yeah. Any, anything about Humio's history that, that we should uh, hear learn more about? Or? Well, yeah, Humio, uh, Danish team. And uh, yeah, I, I think their founders were from Aarhus too. So that, that's why you see CrowdStrike. So yeah, they, they got started. Uh, they, they, yeah, they, they, the, the reason why they were founded was exactly for the same pain points that customers uh, had with Splunk. Yeah, for one, it's very expensive to save data. And for two, it's very slow to query the data and very expensive too. So Humio was created uh, in an effort to say, okay, um, what if I have a next generation architecture um, to uh, compress the data to make uh, to to enable you to save more data at a lower cost with data compression. Furthermore, I can build up more cache. So, for example, I can uh, present the data, calculate the data. For example, for multiple time, when you need the data, maybe you need sum or you need subtract. What if I can compute those uh, data statistics for you in advance? such that you don't have to query the underlying data. So that, that's uh, the focus of uh, Humio. So they uh, build a data lake house that is uh, cheaper and faster. But uh, one drawback is that it wasn't uh, purely developed for cloud. So what that means is that compared to Snowflake or Sentinel-1 or Palo Alto Networks who are cloud native, uh, Humio's architecture uh, has its own uh, drawbacks, especially when it comes to uh, query at faster speed. Jordan? Yeah, just to add a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit extra to that is, um, so yeah, the reason, and this is the reason, as Simon's pointed out, the reason why CrowdStrike has been a late in getting into the XDR market. So they've been a leader in EDR, but they've trailed behind in XDR, which is kind of the evolution of EDR. But the reason they trailed and they let Sentinel-1 and Palo Alto take the lead in XDR is because they couldn't shift to XDR and suddenly um, uh, receive 
data sources from a, di a, a more diverse range of sources um, because they, they had Splunk. And Splunk is not cloud native, it's, uh, and therefore it's not highly scalable, it's uh, cost inefficient. Um, so it was just not feasible to use Splunk if they was going to shift to XDR, because now it means that they need to store even more data. Right. So that's why CrowdStrike was desperate to um, revamp their data layer. And, and they did so in acquiring Humio. Um, and yeah, the, but because of a technical debt, there, there has been some integration issues or kind of just slower integration compared to Sentinel-1's acquisition of uh, a best-of-breed data layer startup, which uh, they, they acquired a company called Scalar. Um, and Sentinel-1's integration of Scalar was a lot smoother than CrowdStrike's integration of Fumio. Um, and yeah, Simon said, it's, it's basically because CrowdStrike um, set off at the races really, really quick, minimal viable product. Uh, they, they, they won market share very, very quickly, but it was at the expense of having an architecture that wasn't really designed for the long term. Um, Sentinel One took longer to get their product market fit, um, but that was at, at the expense of missing out on market share. <laughs> so both of them had to trade off market share and product market fit. So yeah, CrowdStrike now has more market share and still doing very, very well. But we think longer term, Sentinel One has the, the, the more fitting architecture uh, for, for, for the long term. So. Yeah, I just thought I'd add that in there as well. Sam, do you have anything to add to XDR before we move on? Yeah, so, well, uh, so how XDR fits into the SecOps stack? So what what, what that makes is that, uh, you know, um, SecOps, it means that running um, multiple products. So XDR is part of the SecOps, but XDR... What it means is that, so if we think about EDR, it's about uh, collecting the information from endpoint to secure endpoint. XDR is about collecting other sources of data. Some of it is, uh, you know, endpoint data. Sometimes it's network security data. Sometimes it's uh, cloud data to better protect the endpoint. So XDR is still about protecting the endpoint. But what SecOps means is that you are going to collect all the data from all sources, and then you want to protect not only endpoint. Sometimes it's about protecting endpoint. Sometimes it's about protecting the network. Sometimes it's protecting identity or cloud. So that that's a distinction between XDR and the SecOps. Cool. Guys, now it's uh, about time that our listeners, they will sharpen the pen because now we're going to talk about some uh, some companies <laughs> that you uh, project are going to benefit the most from from uh, from the growing uh, SecOp sector. Of course, we have all the kind of disclaimers here, so you're not responsible for anything. But uh, let us hear some of these names that you uh, believe will, will do best in this space. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, going back to the... Stack up stack, um, you know, for the integrated vendors, you know, providing all three stacks together. Uh, I think the best winner uh, should be Palo Alto Networks because they are really the leader in trying to think about what's missing with SecOps and thinking about uh, why SecOps was, uh, you know, growing very uh, slowly in the past decade and 
where are the paths whereby you know they can introduce a next generation solution to address the pain points uh, of SecOps. So I, I think Palo Alto Networks, they are the most thoughtful guys in here, and they are also executing really rapidly here. And uh, yeah, based on their presentation and which we think is correct, they should be able to uh, deliver a next generation SecOps tool uh, that is more effective. And also, I think this would be supercharged by Gen AI. So based on our understanding, uh, Palo Alto Networks is really also the leader in training their own large language models to further automate various processes within the SecOps. So I think it's the best winner. And the second, I think it should be Sentinel-1. Uh, Simon, uh, just a question on uh, Palo Alto. Uh, uh, which which products, uh, they have a huge product list. Oh, right. So which products um, are sort of their leading products in, um, in, in, in security operations? Just a brief, over, brief overview. Yeah, so they have three major product lines. So uh, Strata, which is their network security, and uh, Prisma, which is their cloud security. And the third is Cortex. The Cortex product line is for their SecOps. And within Cortex, they have Cortex XDR. So that is for you know securing the endpoint. And they also have Cortex XSIM. So that is about the SecOps, covering the entire uh, SecOps stack, and most specifically, covering the data layer and uh, SecOps automation layer. The, I think the second winner should be Sentinel-1. So because if you think about what's needed for SecOps, uh, it's really about having the ability to gather as much data as possible and then query this data uh, extremely rapidly. Then Sentinel-1 compared to CrowdStrike, um, it has better data layer. And then also Sentinel-1, because it's a younger company, it's also more innovative. So we see that uh, it's innovating more in the SecOps automation part too. And it's offering uh, many uh, new features and functions that we don't see from other vendors. So for example, it is able to allow uh, SOC operators, a security operation center uh, analyst to write custom codes and logic and then apply it to the end point in which you can make, uh, you can build up your own SecOps automation applications by using Sentinel-1. So I think that is a pretty promising uh, feature too. And then the third is CrowdStrike. So CrowdStrike was kind of late to XDR and then late to SecOps, but they are really catching up uh, pretty uh, fussy. And also they hired the chief product officer and the chief marketing officer from Sentinel-1 who masterminded uh, their go-to-market campaign against CrowdStrike. So in essence, I think CrowdStrike is not losing the game yet. And although they have technical debt, um, they should be able to manage it uh, properly and they should be able to grow as well. And I think apart from these vertically integrated SecOps players, there are also uh, specific players in one layer. So the most apparent one is the data layer. So, you know, Snowflake and Databricks, they are trying to figure out what are the additional use cases for their big data platform. And apparently, uh, security is a big uh, use case. So especially for Snowflake, it's promoting a lot of use cases on top of the their uh, cloud data warehouse. And the good thing about Snowflake is that it is a mutual 
uh, data cloud. So what that means is that it's a Switzerland, so uh, everyone can get integrated with it. And then, you know, for multiple sources of data, you can get connected to Snowflake. And then for multiple uh, setups automation tools, you can also get connected to Snowflake. But if you are Palo Alto Networks or Sentinel One or CrowdStrike, then, um, you know, you will treat your own tools as the first class citizen. So for example, if you are Palo Alto Networks, you will treat the, you know, the security information uh, from your network uh, security products as the first class citizen. But what if it's the security data from Fortinet or from Checkpoint or from Cisco, who are your competitors in the network security stack? Then maybe not. Uh, but for Snowflake, because it's a pure data layer, so it is able to view other sources of data equally. So then you are able to maximize uh, the sources of data, the diversity and the volume of the data such that you potentially you can deliver better better security outcome. Uh, Jordan, what, what is your take on, on these companies or do you have any companies to, to add? Yeah, well, the same companies, Simon's, um, pointed out, um, and yeah, it's just the, the companies that are approaching security operations with a vertical integrated approach, um, because they all, each layer that we've pointed out are very, uh, interdependent on one another. So we, we say, uh, the endpoint agent layer provides very valuable, uh, rich data to the data layer is, you know, the extra, XDR era. It's not the only data source, but it is uh, one of the major data sources. Um, so that's important. So uh, then if these vendors then own the data layer and also have the endpoint software agent, you know, the synergies from that, uh, you know, um, can really outweigh, you know, any other player in this stack that is only at one layer. So, so having, you know, multiple layers uh, provides a lot of synergy. And then once um, the data is in the data layer, then these vendors that Simon pointed out, Palo Alto, Sentinel One, they, they can organize their data layer in a way that is very interoperable, very conducive to their SecOps layer operations. So definitely those companies that or vertic vertically integrated across each layer. There's, there's a lot of synergies with that. Um, yeah, specifically, I like um, Palo Alto. Um, they, yeah, they, they haven't come from an endpoint um, origins per se, but what they've done with the XIAM, um, Simon mentioned it earlier, it was, he mentioned, described it as XSIM. Uh, I, I think it's pronounced XIAM, um, but, yeah, this, I mean, when uh, Nikesh Arora, the CEO, joined Palo Alto as a CEO in uh, 2018, you know, one of his first priorities, uh, because he, he, he was shocked by the amount of alerts that security operations analysts have to respond to each day. You know, on the whole, the SecOps teams have to respond to, um, well, there's tens of thousands of alerts generated each day, and we can only respond to maybe a fraction of those, and many go missed and just can't be dealt with. And this kind of shocked Nikesh Aurora. So his priority was to um, invest in AI and automation in order to reduce this um, this, this number of alerts. Uh, so XIAM is a manifestation of Nikesh Aurora's um, 
leadership in this era, uh, area. So um, Xiamia is kind of like, it's at the data layer. Um, and whereas, you know, a traditional SIM would be very, very noisy, you know, it's got raw logs of data, which um, creates a lot of noise for security analysts. And sometimes you can't see the woods for the trees, so to speak. With XIAM um, that Palo Alto has created, um, is a, a data label with curated signals and high fidelity alerts, which reduces the noise and creates, a, you know, lowers the false positive uh, rate of alert. Um, and yeah, now um, Palo Alto has been using XIAM internally for about two years, um, and. There's reports saying that they've reduced the number of daily alerts from tens of thousands down to just a few hundred alerts. And, um, you know, most of those alerts can be responded to automatically by XIAM and uh, the, the SOAR tools um, that Simon talked about earlier. And then that just leaves just a few alerts, you know, the most uh, complex uh, the, the alerts uh, related to the most complicated threats in the environment for the uh, human cybersecurity analysts to to investigate and apply human judgment, and so um, and and this is no doubt this has been um, a, a key factor for Palo Alto's margin improvement over the last several quarters by using XI, XIM internally. The the productivity gains have been huge and um, so that's lowered their costs and increased their operating leverage and and now they're offering xiam out to its enterprise customers so not only is palo alto using xiam uh, its external enterprise customers are using it as well so yeah for me palo alto then sentinel one uh but crowdstrike as well uh de definitely these these two are really they've, they've just changed the endpoint security market um, and endpoint security you know kind of the next gen era of endpoint security is really determined by who has organized this data layer or who is still stuck in a load of technical debt and they can't reorganize their data layer and there's only three companies that have really invested big bucks um to um, revamp their, their data layer. And that is these three companies we've spoke about. So they've really separated themselves from the rest of the endpoint security market. And no uh, unlisted uh, companies that, that are competing? Yeah, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, because, because this is a space that is fairly new. And then uh, for newer space is that usually it's the startups uh, who need the innovation. But what's pretty interesting to see here is that Palo Alto Networks, the bigger, the biggest guy here, is leading the innovation. So it's kind of squeezing others out because if the most dominant player is already leading the innovation, then you are probably uh, not in a great position to uh, join the game too, uh, especially when you are uh, behind. But Simon, um, do you want to speak? Like, there's some um, innovative. Um, kind of non-listed names in each of these different layers, right? You know, so these uh, the next next gen Sims. Uh, there's some stuff. Right, yeah, sims yeah, well, yeah. Maybe we can talk about talk. that. So, yeah, yeah. So, for example, there is a one company called Panther Labs. So it's a next generation Sim company, 
so basically, uh, this idea is also pretty similar to what we have uh, uh, talked about with the data layer. So what is so it was like a bunch of Airbnb engineers, and they saw that um, the legacy scene doesn't work. And then they found that, okay, we, we have the next generation data layer, which is Snowflake. So why don't we just build up a couple of your custom logic, build up an, a same application on top of Snowflake. And then we build the data pipeline to collect uh, various sources of data and then pump it to Snowflake. And then we build up our own rule list or build up our own SecOps automation tools to do the query on the Snowflake data uh, warehouse. So that this is the place what we are seeing is that, you know, there are startups as building the data application on top of a Snowflake and other data layer. Or sometimes maybe you don't, you, you just use, use open source data layer and then you manage it by your own. So there are multiple ways to do that. But yeah, what's, what's interesting about Panther Labs is that they are open sourcing their rule list. So they're kind of open sourcing their SecOps uh, workflow a bit to others. So by opening up to others, it is able to you know gather the best practices from everyone, and then presumably it is able to you know uh, generate a better security outcome. Guys, before we 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 finish here, there is this you briefly touched up on it, uh, Simon. There is this uh, intense rivalry between uh, CrowdStrike and and Sentinel One, and there is a. Yeah, there is a, a little bit of a history and a story behind this. Can you just tell us about this rivalry between these two? Yeah. So if you think about, you know, the traditional endpoint security antivirus, uh, you know, before 2010, it, it was really Symantec uh, and the McAfee. They were kind of the duopoly in the enterprise endpoint security. But what happened to those two guys uh, was that um, they were managed by professional managers and all of their founders were uh, left uh, pretty earlier. So uh, these professional managers, they were focused on financial engineering and focusing on building the platform by acquiring many other more companies. So they did, they wasn't focusing on uh, building the next generation endpoint security tool. They didn't think about uh, what's the next evolution of the endpoint security. Instead, they just acquire more company and expand their product line. So that gave a huge, uh, that gave a huge fertile ground for endpoint security startups uh, to thrive. So we see uh, hundreds of endpoint security startups being started uh, in the early 2010s. Uh, but then what happens in the next half of last decade, uh, after 2015, we see a great consolidation. So we see a lot of startups being acquired or deprecated. And then as it is now, 2023, uh, we see that only Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike are two standalone XDR leaders. You know, obviously there are Fortinet or Palo Alto Networks, but you know, their XDR solution uh, is under their broader product portfolio. But CrowdStrike and Sentinel-1, they are the two only standalone XDR player, while the rest of the startups like Silent, which was acquired by BlackBerry, and Cyber Reason, which was uh, kind of owned by SoftBank, were in deep trouble. So I, I think one thing about it is that maybe you shouldn't be focusing too much on uh, knowing which one will win. The thing is that the most likely outcome is that 
both companies will thrive and they will become the new duopoly in the next generation endpoint security uh, space. So to speculate which one will win, maybe uh, it's not that relevant if you just allocate accordingly to those two guys. And then another thing to note is that um, both Sentinel-1 and CrowdStrike, their intense competition uh, is so uh, fierce and aggressive such that, you know, they are evolving very rapidly. You know, if there is no competition, maybe CrowdStrike won't switch from EDR to XDR so rapidly. Maybe it won't lower down the price for its customers. But because there is Sentinel-1, so the both parties, they are co-evolving and co-competing to such an extent that they are leaving the rest of the competition far behind. So that that's um, kind of my view on those two guys. I, I, I'm getting curious on Sentinel-1 because uh, Sentinel-1 has been, I think I have two questions in one. Uh, so the first question is about the consolidation in uh, in sort of all of cybersecurity and whether Sentinel-1 is uh, big enough to sort of compete uh, in that space. Yeah, and, and the other thing is is also about uh, Sentinel-1's size. I think many think of them as being a little bit too small for yeah for the consolidation of of the market and and uh and and sentinel one there are rumors about them being for sale and and why do you why do you think that so i guess um, a, a question about the strategic uh, position uh, of sentinel one in a consolidation consolidating uh cybersecurity uh business yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, Sentinel One is definitely is also expanding its platform, and uh, it claims that it has the most unified platform, which we believe that is ballpark correct because CrowdStrike and Palo Alto Networks and Fortinet and other guys they acquired a bunch of uh, companies to build up uh, their own SecOps stack. Uh, so their platform is not that unified. You have multiple single pane of glass. Uh, well, for Sentinel-1, it has one single pane of glass and uh, it made two uh, big acquisitions, but it is able to integrate them uh, more smoothly because, you know, it's earlier in their adoption and uh, also they are just younger, so they can uh, assimilate uh, companies altogether more coherently. But when it comes to the issue with the scale and the platform, I think it's, it's somewhere in between because if you think about the ARR Sentinel-1 close to $600 million, that's not a small amount, but at the same time, it's not big enough. It's not like a multi-billion dollar security business. So I think it's somewhere in between. So, But the issue with that is that in order to compete with CrowdStrike and Palo Alto Networks, then it has to maintain a very high R&D budget to match the R&D power of CrowdStrike uh, and Palo Alto Networks. The same goes for their sales and marketing budget. But because their revenue base is so low, because they are still scaling up, they come to the go-to-market phase uh, at a lateral stage, such that as a percentage of their revenue, their operating expense, uh, expenditure is very high. So that makes investors um, kind of questioning their unit economics, because most of people, um, when you take a look at the gap, income statement, then you will say, okay, Sentinel-1, that's like a super uh, money-losing company that has no profitability. And okay, it has growth, but it seems like the growth is driven by its uh, cash burn. But based on our analysis, 
Um, this doesn't uh, seem right if you dive deeper because their gross margin is very high and it's improving its gross margin at a very rapid pace. And then if you take a look at its ASP, its price versus CrowdStrike, it's about one fifth or about one fourth the price of CrowdStrike while it is able to maintain a gross margin that is about the same to CrowdStrike. That means that it has a very efficient architecture. So that's from the product front. But at the same time, we just need to give it more time to scale up. So once its revenue hits $1 billion or higher, then its sales and marketing and its R&D as a percentage of revenue should come down. But because it's, it's earlier in the uh, scaling phase, so it's natural to see that it has deeper negative margins. But I think uh, that really shocked investors, especially for investors who don't dive deeper into the company. So that is a big issue. And that's also the reason why it's often trading at a steep discount. Uh, when you take a look at the multiples, uh, when it compares to other companies who are growing at a similar uh, growth rate. And uh, I, I think, um, yeah, there are a couple of your M&A speculations about the company, uh, Sentinel-1, they hired a M&A advisor called the Catalyst, which is known for getting the deal done. So it seems like they, they are really pushing hard to sell the company, which is very perplexing because on the earnings call, the CEO said that they are not going to sell the company. But one anecdote that you can take a look at is from their uh, voting structure. So uh, compared to other companies, uh, the founder ownership for Sentinel-1 is pretty low, is less than 4%, uh, while for other companies, it's usually higher than 10%. So that means uh, the founder doesn't have enough control. And usually, it, for this kind of case, you will create a second class, the voting class share, whereby the founder is able to gain uh, more voting power with less ownership. But what's interesting is that here, the class B shares are majority owned by institutional investors, uh, namely inside partners and Red Point Venture, who own uh, together more than 67% uh, of the voting power. Uh, while this founder has only about uh, less than 15% of the voting power. So you have the conflict of interest. Maybe the founder wants to stay independent to run the company for more time, but for their uh, institutional owners, especially for their two VCs, uh, Inside Partners and Redpoint Ventures, they are in the tremendous amount of pressure to return the cash back to their LPs. The, the, the people who, you know, the investors who gave the money for those two VCs to invest in Sentinel-1. And, uh, you know, coming into 2023, um, most investors are very anxious. They want to get the cash back immediately. They don't want, they don't have the patience to wait for additional one or two years for the company to mature or, you know, to uh, create higher return. So I think that may be the case. Um, their majority uh, uh, voters, uh, those two VCs, they want to find out if they can reduce the risk within their portfolio. So it becomes apparent that uh, maybe selling Sentinel-1 via uh, M&A exit uh, should reduce the risk and unlock the discount uh, associated with Sentinel-1. But nevertheless, um, take a look at its uh, existing price. 
I think if uh, for any potential buyers, they should be able to pay a price higher than this. And uh, that, that's also part of our thesis. Guys, thank you so much. This has been super duper interesting to, to uh, yeah cover another layer of this uh, cybersecurity. And uh, yeah, we're learning a lot. And uh, and sometimes, uh, Mass and my, uh, me, we, we might seem a little off. It's just because uh, it's a lot of information. This is really high level and, uh, and our brains are almost exploding. But nevertheless, you're really good at explaining it. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's just like almost two hours of, uh, of just uh, learning uh, a lot. Uh, so, so thank you so much for, for being a part of this podcast again and uh, yeah i'm already looking so much forward to to our next uh, episode yeah yeah always great to be here and uh, bye guys yeah yeah thanks thanks for having us again we're really looking forward to the next episode which will be covering cloud security perfect <laughs>